Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Kohler. Like many of you, I'm cooking almost all my meals at home these days. I have recommitted to the kitchen, which I love. There's something very meditative to me about chopping. I've also been working with our food editor, Caitlin, on stories that share the recipes, tools, and shortcuts that we've come across during this time. One kitchen upgrade from the team at Kohler is a touchless kitchen faucet. It's completely hands-free, so you can speed through cooking and cleaning up. Of course, if you're washing your hands, you still want to scrub for at least 20 seconds, but you never have to touch the faucet in the process. Beyond their smart faucets, Kohler has created a wide range of kitchen and bath products. They make cleaning easier and they deliver on the clean feeling you want at home. You can explore their whole collection at Kohler.com clean. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Nadine Burke-Harris. Dr. Burke-Harris is the author of The Deepest Well, the first Surgeon General of California, and the founder and former CEO of the Center for Youth Wellness, based in San Francisco's Bayview-Hunters Point. Her work links adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress with harmful effects to health later in life. Nadine explains that even unintentional adversity is passed down from generation to generation. What I admire most about Dr. Burke Harris is that she comes from a place of service. Not only is she truly brilliant, but she has used her role as the Surgeon General to introduce trauma-informed care to healthcare professionals through her initiative called ACEs Aware. In today's podcast, we explore what it means to break the transgenerational cycle of passing down adversity to our children. What it comes down to is this. We have a responsibility to heal ourselves first. And with that, we have the power to literally change our children's DNA. When we figure out how do we repair ourselves so that we can be that safe, stable, and nurturing relationship for our kids, right? It, it can literally change those epigenetic markers. Let's get right to my chat with Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. Oh gosh, I have so much I want to ask you about, but maybe you could just mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about your background. And I wanted to also know specifically how, even in your education, you started to make the link between trauma and health, like why were you drawn to go to 
this disenfranchised part of San Francisco mm-hmm. and start a practice? So I would say my, so to answer your, your last question first, my family's from Jamaica. You know, I'm like the big, like I'm the immigrant, like, you know, big Jamaican family, the whole thing. And also my dad is super Catholic, like super, super Catholic. And so we were really raised in this way of like, you just give to the community. You know, like when you're from a small tribe, you, it's just everyone takes care of each other and looks out for each other. And I think especially the way that my dad raised us in terms of, in terms of, you know, giving back to those who are least fortunate and that kind of stuff. I've always felt really connected to being, to caring for underserved communities. And, and also like you can't grow up black in America and not feel outraged by the terrible health disparities that are still going on you know, every day. And when we're talking about health disparities, we're talking about differences in, in like people living or dying, right? People losing their loved ones, people just having the kids, having the opportunity to grow up and be healthy. And so that was the reason why I wanted to go and work in a really underserved neighborhood and why I went to Baby Hunter's Point, because I will tell you, like for me doing my training, like I, did my residency at Stanford. And then before that, I did my master's in public health at Harvard. And it's like, that's who they need in the hood. Like I will say, I'm sure your kids have a fantastic doctor, but I'm sure if they didn't, you would be an advocate and you would say, this doesn't seem right to me. And you would pursue and you would use, you know, influence and everything that you can as a mama bear to get what you need. And the, the people who need like the most amazing on it, doctor are the people who who don't have that right who don't have the don't have as much capacity or education or ability to advocate or power social power or any of that stuff and so that's why i wanted to go work in hunter's point i just want to before i get i want to carry that thread through but i just had a question about your dad so and this might be just out of left field but how does one reconcile being a very strong Catholic and a scientist at the same time, a chemist, a doctor. I think for my dad, it was like part and parcel. So part of it was that he was, he went to a Jesuit high school and the Jesuit teaching is very much kind of, uh, you know, deep into the science and, and probing and testing and asking questions. And so his, his approach to science wasn't this like, it came down on high and that's the way that it is. It was very much like, look at the miracle of this molecule, right? And how amazing it is, right? Like that was, that's, so it was very consistent, his faith and his scientific. It's so interesting to me because I think, you know, I think part of the issue with society, and I think it's been highlighted by this, COVID time is that, you know, we we're living in this age of, of science where if it's not empirically provable, it, it, it can't exist. It can't be true, mm-hmm. which, which also relates to your work and how you started to make connections, you know, without a huge set to understand cause and effect. And you're proving that now, but I always wonder, you know, how, when, when physicians really 
have faith, it seems like such an amazing mix of the two things, you know, because we have, I, I, I think that lack of faith is what leads to hoarding toilet paper, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. it's like the fear, this becomes the, the religion and and in a lot of ways, I think that our reliance on only science and not the God part, you know, causes a lot of that in, in our culture. The experience of one of the ways that it shows up for me is that science for me is, is an amazing tool that I feel like I apply in doing work that is to work to heal the world right? Like science doesn't, doesn't, I, I, so I'll tell you something crazy. I've never told anyone this before, but this is really funny. When I went to do my TED talk, um, and I know you're like, this is crazy. She's never told anybody she's telling Gwyneth Paltrow, but whatever. But this is like, this is a really amazing conversation because when I went to do my TED talk, I was super nervous, crazy, crazy, crazy nervous. And literally my knees were knocking and like my legs were shaking. And I closed my eyes right before I got up and I literally said, I said, Lord, if it is your will to let this message move through me and into the world, like let that happen right now. And it was really, it was very calming for me. And I'm not like, I'm not like, like I don't go to church every Sunday. I'm not like the, the whatever, but I, I, for me, it was about a, like a higher purpose or a, a, or a deeper meaning, easing suffering in the world, uh, which I feel like is, it's as much a spiritual endeavor as it is a scientific endeavor. Wow. Yeah. Incredibly profound and beautiful. You know, I just started your book because I just got it when, and I'm fascinated by it and I can't wait to finish it because I've always felt like the way we live our lives is, is in America and, and maybe it's potentially different in other cultures, but that our, the bad things that happen to us become a footnote and we're not taught at the time how to process trauma. And it's so incredible to see your observations around adverse childhood experiences and like actual health, heart health, asthma, et cetera. And so I did, and it's quite, I don't know, punk rock to start to put those things together and to create, you know, the science around childhood adversity and the effects of it. So, did people think when you when you started to ideate this, were people, did you have resistance to this or were, did people, were they sort of nonplussed? Like what was the reaction of your, of your colleagues? It was a really um, interesting experience. It was the full range, right? There were, there were some people, there were some people who were like, that's really cute that you're doing this work and the science and the stress. For me, an interesting part of the story that I don't talk about a lot in the book, but it is really inextricably a part of my story is how 
for me, race also plays a role, right? Because when you're like, you know, when you're the only black person in like, you know, your, your science class at Berkeley, that's got a thousand people in it, right? right? Or when you're like, for me, I was, you know, one of a very, very small handful of black people in my medical school class. And what happens is that you kind of don't get the luxury of being, of being a goof off, right? Because people look at you and they see black people. Right. And so you've probably heard this from your black friends where it's like there's a sense of of a, a different level of excellence that's required. And so for me, that lesson came through when I first started learning about adverse childhood experiences and understanding that I was not only learning about the science and applying the science to heal my patients, but that I was also going out there and I had to represent it in the world. When you ask the question of like, did people take it seriously? I mean, part of the thing that you'll experience in the in in the book, and part of the, that you'll just see, even for example, with my TED talk, is that my my message always includes a blend of like real life, like, hey, this is how it shows up. This is what it looks and feels like, and I don't mess around when it comes to the science. Like, I'll tell you, I know my shit, <laughs> and so, and I'm not joking. Like, it really is. And so when people, and when people would say like, oh, that's not really a thing, right? Or that's not really scientific, or that's just, you know, that's just how life is, or it's just behavior, right? I would be like, actually, you know, individuals with higher risk of, you know, with higher doses of adversity have downregulated beta agonist receptor in their pulmonary endothelium, right? And so someone who is what you just said, but yes, yeah, exactly. Right. But someone who is a pulmonologist, I'm like, oh, that's your thing. Oh, you're, you're, you're an immunologist. You're, you're another doctor. You're a researcher. You're a head of a hospital. You're whoever, like, I'm going to, I'm going to know, not like have read it and kind of think of whatever, but I'm, there are so many people who have experienced such adversity, right? That they need me to know my shit and they need me to be able to, when I make the case Mm -hmm. that the full weight of the science is behind it. And so that is, it's a long answer to your, to your question, but the people received it in a whole bunch of different ways. And my response always to that is to be extremely, extremely rigorous with the science. And as a result, what we've seen is that there have been a transformation. In the past decade, like we went from, I went from people being like, oh, you know, whatever, to California is implementing, you know, the, the, the largest initiative, you know, ever in terms of training doctors on how to screen for and respond to childhood adversity. It's incredible. Is there, and this might be a weird question, but is there any sort of correlation between length or severity of trauma and susceptibility later in life to health, these health issues? Yeah, so the, the way that it works is the cumulative adversity is what impacts health. And I, I, the, the piece of it that's important is that it's a combination of 
the exposure, including, you know, the length, the severity, the duration, also the, the different types of trauma. So like when we talk about adverse childhood experiences, those include, there, there are 10 different categories, you know, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, physical, emotional neglect, growing up in a household where a parent was mentally ill, substance dependent, incarcerated, parental separation or divorce or domestic violence. And so the interesting thing is what the data shows when you look at an ACE score, for example, if someone has an ACE score of four, it means that they had experienced four of those categories. It doesn't say how severely or intensely or for how long, but it does give a good sense of like, if you are a child, you're growing up in a household and you experience both physical abuse and sexual abuse and neglect, and you had a parent who was depressed, like you get a sense of the, the, the day-to-day, the cumulative experience that your body has to absorb. And so that's a really important component. But the other really important component is that we all have a different level of vulnerability, right? So it's just like height, right? Like some people, because of the way they're born, their family history, their genetics, you know, some people are four foot 11, some people are six foot five, right? And so some people can experience really significant adversity and have less of a, a, a biological impact. And some people can, even, even with smaller doses of adversity, have a really kind of right. outsized impact. So it's, a, so it's a combination. And then obviously the, the other piece of the combination is the buffering. Right. So if you experience moderate adversity, but you had lots of nurturing, oh my gosh, the data on this is awesome. So if you have this, this check that if you have four or more adverse childhood experiences, like your risk for certain health problems is like, you know, double as compared to someone who had zero. But then if you also had tons of buffering, right, you had loving parents who who you, you had an adult who you always trusted and looked out for you, you felt loved, you felt cared for, all of that stuff that actually reduces the, the risk of the negative health outcome. Yeah, but by a lot, by like, you know, 50 to 60%. And what happens in the body when we experience stress that leads to this? Yeah, so when we experience stress, it activates our fight or flight response. And that happens in a couple of ways. It's a combination between our brain. So the amygdala in our brain activates the fear response. And then that triggers the release of all these stress hormones. And there are a whole lot of stress hormones, but the ones that we kind of, the ones that are most commonly known are adrenaline and cortisol, right? So we all know adrenaline, that's like, when you go skiing and you're <laughs> right and you're going really fast and your heart is pounding really hard and you're like ah that's adrenaline so adrenaline can be you know people talk about the adrenaline rush right but the but what adrenaline does is it increases your blood pressure your blood sugar it shunts blood to your big muscles and so that you can you know have you so you're you know you're literally like your muscles are you know, slightly stronger, like they work harder and more efficiently. And then the other one is cortisol. So adrenaline is more of a short-term stress hormone. And the other one is cortisol, 
which is more of a long-term stress hormone. And if you think about what would trigger cortisol, it's kind of like, historically, you might think of something like famine, right? Or drought. That is like back when we were running in the plains in Africa, right? Like that's the famine was a real major stressor. And so cortisol also raises your blood pressure, your blood sugar. It actually can make you more, slightly more aggressive, right? And interestingly, cortisol, so tell me if this is too much, but it turns out that almost every cell in your body has a receptor for cortisol, right? And part of the reason for that is because when cortisol is released, it is a signal to the body that you're experiencing a long-term stress. And so it's trying to mobilize your brain and body to be able to survive better in long-term stress. And so it can affect your immune system, right? When you activate your, your stress response, it also activates the immune response. It can affect your, like one of the things, it can make people a little bit more aggressive because if you're in the Serengeti and there's no food, if you're more aggressive than the next guy, you're more likely to survive, right? And so it also inhibits the part of the brain that's responsible for like executive functioning, like judgment and impulse control and all of those things. And so these are, these are a lot of the effects that we see of stress on the body. It's on the brain, it's on our hormones, it's on our immune system, and then it's even on the way our DNA is read and transcribed. Because if you're experiencing these long-term stressors, you actually want the body to be able to adapt. And so it affects what we call the epigenetic regulation, which is, it's not your genetic code, but it's the way your genetic code is, is expressed. So like if you think about if you think about your DNA as musical, as like sheet music, or musical notes, epigenetic regulation is like the musical notations. It'll be like, hey, play that part again, or play it, you know, forte, or, <laughs> you know, or, you know, softer, like pianissimo, or whatever it is. And that's how our environment triggers the release of these hormones. And these hormones change the way our DNA is read and transcribed. And then I imagine in the more, so if you compound childhood adversity and you're, you're in a more disenfranchised part of America and you're, you're like it touches on in your book, the area where you work was a toxic waste dump. I'm sure there aren't regulations around no metals in the water <laughs> the way that there should be in many parts of the country in there. So I, I would imagine it has a compounding effect on a lot of these things. Yeah, it's interesting. So the, the, the doctor who discovered the lead in the water in Flint is a good girlfriend of mine. And it's interesting that uh, Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, and when many of the effects of lead poisoning are very similar to the effects of toxic stress, like the impact that it has on the brain uh, is very, very similar and actually some of the interventions that we do to help kids are really similar as well, but you're, you're exactly right. But the interesting thing about it, and this is one point, is that the, the adverse childhood experience, a study, so this big research study done by the CDC and Kaiser, 
It, it wasn't done in a neighborhood like the one I served. It was done in Kaiser San Diego. Their population was 70% Caucasian, 70% college educated. And I think that was actually a really big eye opener because when you work in Hunter's Point, people expect it. Like people, you know, people look at the situation and say, oh, those folks have worse health outcomes. It's because they're, you know, they're poor or they are in poverty or whatever. But it turns out like rich white people that experience a lot of adversity also have really poor outcomes. It's just the biology of how adversity affects your, your body. And interesting that there are almost different, different constitutions weather it differently and survive better or have better outcomes. Yeah, I mean, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on a combination of, it depends on a combination of like supportive factors, right? So for example, some of the things that you might, it's number one, the total cumulative adversity because right. the 10 ACEs are the ones that they studied in the research study, right? But then if you have the adversity of discrimination, that's gonna add to your cumulative adversity, right? Or if you have the adversity of, you know, your stress response is activated because you don't know whether you're gonna pay rent or whether you're gonna be evicted or because you're, you know, there's, there's violence on the street in the community, that acts to, adds to your cumulative adversity. So, so there's, there's a different differential exposure. And then there's also like the more resources you have in your community to support individuals, families, parents, kids, right? Like if you're in a neighborhood where you may be experiencing a ton of adversity in your home, right? But you go to school and your, your teachers are well supported and they're able to be that safe, stable, nurturing relationship for the kid. Those kids are going to be better off. Right. But if you're in this under-resourced, underperforming, totally overtaxed school system, right, then it becomes much, again, like you're just taking away the, the opportunities for resilience and support. We'll get right back to the chat. years we've hosted goop pop-ups in many different cities we have and we look forward to hitting the road again with you as soon as we're able to exactly one of my favorite spots for a goop market is sag harbor in the hamptons is it mosey <laughs> yeah where our team has spent a few summers i love seeing how they recreate the experience of walking through a hamptons home the team is so good at doing that <laughs> in such an authentic way there's always an unexpected element, like a grand freestanding Kohler bathtub anchoring the main room. Yep. Kohler has been a natural goop partner for a long time. They're the best. They also try to create more moments for relaxation and restoration. Definitely. They believe that the little things matter, like a warm bath at the end of a long day. I agree, don't I? <laughs> yeah. I'm in one every day. They design products that make cleaning easy, and they optimize products and experiences that give you that greater feeling of a clean slate. Ah, yeah. 
Among their many home innovations, Kohler makes brilliant hands-free faucets for the kitchen. You can wash your hands or food without touching the faucet, which is especially helpful when you're cooking and juggling a few prep items at once. Wouldn't that be great? We it gotta was. get that. <laughs> yeah. Right now, Kohler is particularly known and appreciated for their bidet self-cleaning bidet. Oh, bidet self-cleaning <laughs> toilets and other smart toilets that come with advanced cleansing features. Oh yeah. You can explore their whole collection of kitchen and bath products at kohler.com/clean. Nice work. Thank you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I want to ask you are there interventions or modality that can be applied after trauma to reverse some of these health effects from long-term childhood trauma? Do you mean immediately after or like long-term after? I mean long-term, like, you know, are are there ways that these children like can help reframe what happened to them and you know, experience the more connection or love they're able to experience, the more that they heal, and then the more that, or the less that they're at risk for some of these diseases. Yeah. So this is my favorite part of this work, right? So randomized controlled trials. They took kids where kids who were um, institutionalized children, so they were in orphanages, right, and they randomized them into either high quality nurturant care, right, within their orphanage or care as usual, which is sad, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's sad to say that care as usual is like the opposite of high quality nurturant care. Right. And they did this when the kids were two years old and they, they did MRIs of their brain. And then they look at kids who were never institutionalized. And what they found was that the kids who were randomized into high quality nurturant caregiving their brains, the brain structure on MRI looked like the kids who had never been institutionalized, right? Like, so when we talk about safe, stable and nurturing relationships and environments are healing for kids, we're not just talking about like, oh, it's so nice to have. It's actually what we see is we can see changes in brain structure and function. We can see changes in immune profile. We can see changes in the level of stress hormones. And there are, there are a bunch of interventions. So one of the most important things with this whole process is recognizing what's going on to begin with. It's recognizing, oh my goodness, because of what you've experienced, your body may be making more stress hormones than it should. It can look and feel like this how does it show up for you, right? So just recognizing that. And I found that for my patients, just that bit of information, like the number one answer that I get when I say that to my patients is, oh, you mean I'm not crazy? It's like, no, no, not at all, right? Like this is, this is actually the normal response for someone who's experienced what you've experienced, right? That is really powerful. So then when we look at the evidence and like, you know, again, looked at thousands of research studies, some of the things that help to regulate stress hormones, because we, we now know what we're trying to target. We're trying to target the activation of the stress response, right? And so that includes, 
That includes, you know, the healthy relationships, regular exercise, right? So exercise, the other thing that exercise does, and I feel like I'm, this is a physician heal thyself moment right now because there's a lot of stress happening in my life uh, right now. But exercise not only helps to metabolize stress hormones, but it also releases something called BDNF, which is brain derived neurotrophic factor. And it's like miracle grow for brain cells. It actually stimulates our ability to make new neural connections, right? And that's exactly what you want to do for someone who's had a history of adversity. So exercise, really important. Good sleep, sleep hygiene, really important because when we're sleeping, our stress response recalibrates itself. So like, you know, you notice when you don't sleep, like when you, when you miss sleep, A, you feel kind of, you feel in your body like it's a stressor. I don't, have you ever felt that? You feel kind of worn out. And it turns out that like your levels of cortisol and your stress response resets itself when you're sleeping. And so when you miss sleep, it, it, your, your stress response can be more dysregulated. So sleep, nutrition is a really important one because it also another important part of the way the stress response affects our health is that for folks who have a history of high doses of adversity, they have an increased likelihood of insulin resistance, right? right? So insulin is also part of this whole stress process. And so having a diet that is really limits refined carbohydrates to reduce that insulin spike is also an important part of a, a important part of a diet that can help to regulate the stress response so exercise is really important diet nutrition are are there are there are there anything what else do you encourage your patients to do in terms of you know, I mean, what you said before, the naming of it sounds like that is such a relief, right? To have somebody name what's going on and just expose it. So mm -hmm. do you think that shame plays a part in this? So, you know, if these things happen to you and you, you're carrying shame, do you think that, that one relates to that kind of exposure in terms of shame and holding on to that? Can that be dispersed? Can that be healed? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. I, I don't, I, I feel like I haven't thought about it specifically in that frame, but I work a lot with mental health professionals, like in my, in when I was, when I was in my clinical practice, before I came into this role in government, you know, we had these multidisciplinary teams. And one of the things that we learned is, is to your point very much so like um that being able to to name it and to recognize i think for a lot of people that like this isn't their fault right like there's a lot that they can i i think that a lot of people who have experienced a history of adversity or significant aces when they come into, when they're, when they're experiencing now the symptoms of an overactive stress response, a lot of people have been told that they're the problem, 
right? right? Or even they've told themselves that they're the problem. And so I think that to have, uh, especially to have, you know, a doctor or a scientist or a researcher say, no, 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 this is how the body responds to a history of adversity. And, and this is the important piece, like, and here are some things that you can do about it, right? So here's how you recognize it. And then here is how you, here, here are some ways that you can support yourself or the people that you love. And I think that does go a very long way to reduce the shame and the stigma and to help people, you know, really direct their energy at the thing that's most important, which is, which is healing, right? Which is like getting healthy, you know? But I think we saw, like, we saw that even with HIV in the 80s, right? With like gay men who were out had a better prognosis on the same antiretroviral drugs than, than gay men with HIV who were not out because there's this level of shame and stigma and hiding that literally affects your biology, right? And it, and it only further increases that, that biological stress. It's so fascinating. And also I think really speaks to the power of being, of feeling your feelings, being connected in your body, exploring them, mining them, giving yourself the space to process through things and that that ultimately can impact your, your longevity. Yeah. And when, you know, the, the interesting thing about this research is that I think and the thing that's really powerful for me is that I think that we've always known and recognized as a society that the that early adversity can increase your risk for mental health and behavioral disorders for depression or anxiety or substance dependence or suicidality, right? And that was was treated in a certain way because those are all outcomes that tend to be really stigmatized societally. And then one of the things that I've observed with this research is that when you say, oh, when someone has four or more ACEs, their risk for heart disease and stroke and cancer is double, right? Those are no longer like, those are no longer conditions that are conditions of, of bad behavior per se, right? Like when you're talking about for folks with two or more ACEs, your risk for autoimmune disease right, is, is double. Then people, I think, have this different response to it. And, uh, and for me, I think the other thing that happens is that it really broadens the tent of the, the, the people who feel like this is something really important to, to address, right, so. You, you touched on sleep earlier, and I know, you know, it's almost like an epidemic of sleeplessness in this country. What, what can we do about sleeplessness? Yeah, this, so there are a couple things that we recommend. So number one, it's like the basics of, you know, what's called sleep hygiene, right? Which is going to bed and waking up at the same time every night. Yeah. And it turns out that when you do that, your brain actually entrains, 
right? So your brain starts to release all those sleep-inducing neurotransmitters at the same time, and it, and it, and it makes them more effective, right? So I am I'm super religious about my sleep schedule. What's I am not a great time? sleeper. <laughs> my bedtime for real is nine o'clock. That is no joke. Like, <laughs> like is that in bed TV or that's in bed lights out? That is in bed lights out. Like I'm, yeah, I'm, I, I get, I mean, I, I get up at five, but yeah. But the other, the, uh, my, my husband and I have four kids. So it means that a lot of, when the, the big boys, when they're up later, he's on the night shift because he's more of a night owl and I'm in the morning. You have four kids? That's incredible. Yeah. We have four boys, four boys. Pray for me. <laughs> so going to bed and waking up at the same time is one thing that's really important. And then you talked about TV, like not having TV or devices at least 30 minutes before bedtime, you know, things like avoiding caffeine after noon and, or, you know, just being aware of how, how your diet also affects your sleep, right? Those are some of like the mainstays of sleep hygiene. The other thing is making sure that your sleep environment is like a calm, cool, quiet environment. Those are the you know, whatever, that's what they say, calm, cool, and quiet environment. And then for folks who really are struggling with sleep, I really recommend, it's good to like talk to your doctor, right? Because your doctor might recommend something like melatonin or another sleep aid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I went, the the nights that I can't sleep or, you know, I'm dealing with like perimenopausal stuff. So like there are certain nights now where I just have such a terrible time and it's torture, especially having- oh, a- So what do you do? What do you do for yourself? I have breathing exercises that I try mm. to do and just sort of, I lie there and do a meditation. Like, you know, I'll just picture, I'll start like at the crown of my head and sort of fill my body with like a molten sort of energy liquid thing and do sort of vis- visualizations like that. And that tends to help me a lot too. It's, that's so funny that you say that because I will say that I think that meditation for me is my most effective sleep support. Like I do, I do a meditation before bed and it's, um, it's like a total relaxation meditation. What time do you do? I do one. So I did a neuroscience retreat at Plum Village. Are you familiar with Plum Village in France? So Thich Nhat Hanh is like a, he's a Vietnamese monk and he was a kind of, you know, global, did, did really amazing global work around the Vietnam War and the whole thing. And, and then he started this monastery in France. He was exiled to France and he started this monastery in France where they do a lot of also like very academic, like, like neuroscience related work with mindfulness. And so I went there, I was speaking at a neuroscience and mindfulness conference last year and I downloaded their app. It's the Plum Village app. And uh, so there was some, a total relaxation meditation that I practiced when I was there. And then now I do it and it's, it's really effective for me, for myself. And you do it every night. I do. I do it every night. Cause you know, like my job is kind of stressful right now. I know. (laughs) Yeah. How are you, are you going into the clinic? 
So my, so since I took on the role of Surgeon General, I haven't, I had to give up my clinical practice, okay. which I hope to, you know, I, one day I want to get back into, that, that's my favorite part of being a doctor is seeing patients. But for now, my work is around, yeah, being, being the Surgeon General of California. So rad. Yeah. <laughs> affecting policy and you know you're helping all of those patients in a much more impactful way I would imagine you know being able to well I will say the thing that I'm most proud of is that we have you know stood up this initiative called ACEs aware in California where we are you know the first state in the nation where doctors now can get reimbursed like they can get paid for screening for adverse childhood experiences. But in order to get paid for screening, they have to do training on trauma-informed care, mm. right? And so they have to get certified. And so we're, we're training our doctors in California about trauma-informed care. Like, can you, can you believe that this hasn't been a part of medicine? No, I can't. And, and frankly, I wanna say like, I think that it's very, I think that it's very easy for for folks to look at it and kind of maybe, you know, saying, oh, really trauma-informed care? Like that's what the California Surgeon General is focused on. But it turns out that like the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, you know, identified early adversity and trauma as being like a major, major, major health issue. If we can do better practice and better science, I think it has the opportunity to be one of the greatest medical advances of the 21st century is for, for all, you know, healthcare professionals to recognize and understand the role that stress and trauma plays in our health and then what we can do to help people be healthier and, 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 and live well. Yeah. So important. It's amazing. And amazing that the surgeon, the first surgeon general of California has this sort of consciousness going into, you know, from such an amazing place of, of service and, and, and looking at a, a human being in that holistic way, you know, what has happened to them and, and what is their emotional state? I think it's pretty amazing. But so for, so for now, how much of your day is spent on coronavirus? A lot, so a lot, yeah. <laughs> but in a really interesting way, right? Because the, every, you know, everyone in health and human services, it's all hands on deck. Like this is a, an, an, a, you know, a once in a generation experience that we're all experiencing right now with this COVID pandemic. And one of the things that I feel really fortunate about is that I actually, I think there are some folks in health and human services where they were working on a project and they've kind of had to drop it completely and just fully focus on COVID, getting enough ventilators, getting enough testing, getting which, which we've been working so hard to do. I think I was really fortunate to be in the situation where I was able to look at a lot of the work I had been focused on in terms of the effect of stress and adversity in our health and recognize that that work is even more important now in the era of COVID, right? 
because yeah. what we're seeing now is not just that everyone's experiencing stress. So we have to understand how stress affects our health and the impact of you know stress-related chronic disease on like the impact of stress hormones on things like diabetes, right? Because we've seen in other natural disasters, right, that there's higher rates of you know heart attacks and strokes and diabetes and all of these things related to just the stress of the experience that we're all going through. So that was something that was really important. It it's even more important right now for doctors and healthcare providers to understand that and to, and to know what the best practices are and what the best evidence is. But the other piece is, the other piece is that adverse childhood experiences are going up, Yeah. right? So oh. there's more right. domestic violence that's happening right now. It's just so heartbreaking. And this is what's so beautiful about your work. We need to go in and fix the, the systemic problems that cause you know, this transgenerational harm from one parent to their child and on. There's like, we have to figure out a way to break that. So, yeah, I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly what my work is focused on even more so right now with COVID because what we see, for example, is if you have an adult who had ACEs in their childhood, right? So then their more, their biology is what we call stress sensitized, which means that they're at greater risk of having a poor outcome, whether it's physical health, you know, mental health, behavioral health with subsequent stressors, right? Because they may have an overactive stress response. So then you throw a stressor like a pandemic into the mix and you have folks who are at greater risk of having negative health outcomes, but then also greater risk of having negative you know, mental and behavioral health outcomes. And so with the stress, it's, it's literally like, I'm, I'm looking, you can see, you can look, turn around and look at our society and you can see that everyone's stress hormones are pumping, yeah. right? And you can see that in our reactivity. And so with that, if you think about it, right? That executive functioning, that level of some of that difficulty with impulse control, difficulty with executive functioning, for some people like anger, frustration, all of that is just increasing. And then you throw in someone has lost their job, a job that they desperately need, and they're trying to take care of their kids and they're at home. So this is, again, it's kind of taking a lot of the, the shame and the blame out of the equation and just recognize that everyone's at greater risk yeah right and so if we can if we can get that word out and help people understand that yeah your stress hormones are are really pumping right now and here are the things that make a difference sleep exercise nutrition mindfulness mental health healthy relationships right that these things are actually really healing and the, that feels like it's it's so important and so urgent now more so than ever. How does one have go out and forge a healthy relationship if their model for love in the home was neglectful or abusive? How yeah, so there's a couple ways to do that, but one of the most important ways is therapy, like you know, mental health 
talking to a mental health professional. And I, I think that there's, there are different levels of receptiveness uh, to therapy, but I think a lot of the stigma is going, um, is less than it used to be. But that is really, I think, an important way to do that is to work with a professional because the thing that I um, tell, you know, when I, when I, when I've been in clinic with the, with the parents of my patients, one of the things is that to, I think people recognize that these things get handed down generation after generation, and it's not intentional, right? And so if you've experienced it, you're at much greater risk of handing it down to your kids. Right. And it's like any, it's honestly, it's like any genetic disease or any other health condition that if you get, you get care for it, if you get treatment, then you're less likely to hand it down to your kids. Right. right? And I think I see a lot of parents doing things for, to do, to do by their kids when they, they wouldn't have gotten that care for themselves. That feels really powerful for me because I think the other piece of it uh, is that for a lot of people, there's this notion that if I'm strong and I'm smart, I can just overcome, right? Mm -hmm. That I can, sure, I experienced these hard things in my childhood, but if, I, if, I, if I'm tough enough, right, I can just get over it. And right. I think that the, part of the thing that the science is showing us, right, is that, and, and, and for many people getting over it, what they mean is like, oh, I didn't have a, I didn't have an addiction or I didn't have a mental health problem or I didn't have a whatever. When, when in reality, you might have none of those things and, and end up with, you know, heart disease or autoimmune disease, right? So the point is, that it's really important to get care. And then that dramatically reduces the risk of handing it down. Right. I've always thought that, you know, you know that phrase in the Bible that the, the sins of the father, the child is responsible for the sins of the father. And it always was so confounding to me. And, or I don't know, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not really like a Bible. I understand you talking, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you, you probably know it better than I do, but that, that general thought and that, and that I, what I, when I became a parent, I realized like, oh no, it's it's our responsibility to heal whatever the sins of our parents were. If we can heal them, then we don't carry them and they don't become our sin. And we don't pass it along. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the, the, the powerful thing is that what the science and the research shows is that our, the, the work that we do to kind of change our relationship to some of these experiences and patterns in our families. And like when we, when we are that, when we figure out how do we repair ourselves so that we can be that safe, stable and nurturing relationship for our kids, right? It, it can literally change those epigenetic markers that I was talking about, L literally. Like it can, so it's it, so things like that, where when we're talking about a parent who's had a history of ACEs or trauma, you know, going to therapy, they literally, their process of doing that so that they can then 
deliver those daily doses of buffering care to their children literally changes their their kids like dna right like <laughs> so that is that is some powerful stuff and that's something that uh for me as i approach this work i approach this work from this incredibly hopeful and and really joyful position because i'm like i not only do i know it can be done I've seen it. I've seen it in, in patient after patient in my clinic. And to see a family who otherwise had really, really been struggling in these patterns that have been handed down generation after generation, and then help you know, arm them with the information to understand, oh, this is why I'm so reactive to stuff. This is why when I get triggered, I go from zero to 100, right? And it's really, and it's really strong. Right. It's really and, and and here's what I can do about it. And then that's going to change not only my experience, but my child's life and then down the line, like for generations. Right. That's that feels powerful. Thank you so much for joining me in conversation with Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. For more, make sure to get copies of her book, The Deepest Well. And our conversation was just figured in Shapes Magazine's most recent cover story, which is on newsstands now. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.